Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Rutger, and you'll hear from our other co-host, Jason, very soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data analytics company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Remember, any opinions or views expressed by our guest or the co-hosts on this podcast are theirs alone and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company they work for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise, unless our guests have granted us explicit permission to do so. Today, we'll be talking to Paradigm Talent Agency's first ever business intelligence analyst, Diana Greemore. Originally from the sunny, sprawling suburbs of San Diego, California, after graduating from the University of California, San Diego, Diana packed up all of her things and moved to New York City, sleeping on a friend's couch and giving herself just two months to make it in the Big Apple. And she did. For the past three and a half years, Diana has worked at Paradigm, one of the entertainment industry's most important and highly regarded talent agencies. While she now holds the illustrious title of business intelligence analyst, it's a role she had to create for herself, working her way up from receptionist and office manager. But start small and don't skip steps isn't just an axiom embodied by Diana's own career. It's something she encourages artists and their teams to think about when approaching their own growth trajectories, especially during the uncertainty of live music in a post-COVID world. Without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Diana Greemore. You went to uh, UCSD, and it looks like that's where your official music business experience started. But did you have any experience beyond that, either creatively or in the industry officially? Yeah, a little bit. I kind of had like a winding road to the music industry and and honestly think that I really just fell into it rather than planned anything. Um, just to say, I, I grew up in a very conservative religion um, that didn't really in- encourage careers <laughs> or <laughs> education beyond uh, a, a certain level. So I never mm. really thought about working in the industry professionally. You weren't even really supposed to do many curricular activities outside of the church. Um, but thankfully, my mom was very supportive of that and very supportive of the arts. Um, so I grew up doing musical theater, playing piano, convinced my mom to let me do singing lessons. I was not very good at first. I will tell you that I worked very hard to get a decent singing voice. Um, <laughs> Um, so yeah, musical theater was in choir. I was even, I was in a band for a while, a proper garage band. And I'm so glad that I have that experience to look back on. It it was really, really fun. But yeah, that was kind of like the background pre college and everything. Mm. Um, but even, even when I was like on stage or something, I, I always felt more like I thrived behind the scenes, like assistant directing or helping with the logistics and whatnot. So I got my taste of the stage, decided I do much better behind the scenes, helping out the much more talented people um, succeed. So I guess that was like my first taste of the music industry. How did that jump from from that to like your 
college education and then to ending up in New York at Paradigm? Yeah, so when I started at UCSD, I was actually an archaeology major. Loved to be some Indiana Jones. Um, (laughs) But then after I learned that most of the jobs were like actually in construction and there wouldn't be much Indiana Jonesing around the world, Mm. um, I really thought of like, well, what else do I like to do? And thought I'd go into entertainment. Um, So I switched to like comms and business and really thought I'd go into working in television and film and was up for a dream job, I thought, at ABC upon graduating in TV development. And last minute, I didn't get it. I think it's because I mentioned going to raves as like a spare activity. (laughs) But I guess I'll never know. And you know what? It worked out for the best um, because like two weeks after graduation, I just packed up, moved to New York, um, slept on a friend's couch for the week and gave myself like two months to figure something out. And, and via my old boss got introduced to AM only where I interviewed and, uh, started out as a receptionist. So you worked your way from receptionist to business intelligence analyst. How did that happen? Well, it's definitely been a long time in the making. (laughs) When I started out as a receptionist slash office manager, I will add, um, I really tried to just kill it at the job um, and be very good. And whenever I had spare time, I would ask other teams if they needed help. And a team that I worked with a lot um, was Paul Morris's team uh, with his client, Tiesto. I think my big break was I helped plan a really great vacation for Tiesto to Disney World, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm a total Disney fan. So it was like my dream job. Uh, (laughs) I really thrived in that. Uh, I basically planned my dream trip to Disney World for for him. Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, a month or two after that, uh, an opening came up on up on the team um, for Paul to continue to do stuff like that for his artists. So I really dived in to tour coordinating and coordinating logistics, visas, hotels, basically everything that comes with the life of a heavily international touring DJ. Um, I did that for two years and loved it. Um, But after two years, I was, you know, kind of itching for something new. So I started conversations with other people within the company um, about places I could go next or things I could learn next. Ended up being a spot opening up for like the role of booking coordinator on Paul's team. So I I did that for about a year, um, which was great. I definitely wanted that. That that is essentially the bread and butter of an agency. Tour coordinators is not very um, common, um, at least at the agency role, but booking coordinators are. So that was super helpful to learn the ins and outs of booking and what goes into a contract, how to chase for money, what goes into these negotiations. It was such an amazing learning experience. Um, But if you stay in the role of booking coordinator, the next logical step eventually is to become an agent. And after, 
you know, a couple of years at an agency and especially in the booking coordinator role, I decided that um, I did not want to be an agent. <laughs> Although you always start out as an agency thinking, yeah, like, why not? I could totally do this. Um, I realized that the role of an agent, among a lot of things, uh, requires a lot of talking about money on the phone all day. Mm-hmm. Um which is great and super necessary, but not something I necessarily thrive in. Um, I can do it, but I just don't, didn't know if I wanted to do it for a living. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so after I kind of realized I didn't want to be an agent, I gave my team a huge heads up that I would be leaving the company. I gave them like five months in advance heads up, which I don't Whoa. think... I would recommend for other people (laughs) like you never know which way it'll go. But, um, you know, I really loved my team. I really loved our clients and I wanted to make sure that they were in in really good hands. Um, so honestly it ended up working out for me because during that five months I started, you know, learning other skill sets because what skills did I have? They were very nuanced to very large international touring DJs, which, it's just not applicable in every industry or job. Um, mm. So I started learning data visualization with Tableau, actually. And throughout that process, you know, I was still at the company and we were in meetings. And I noticed us looking at spreadsheets of ticket sales and just thinking, oh, wow, I think I can make this better to look at and easier to comprehend. Um, so I started toying around with stuff and bringing that into meetings just for like my internal team and then the teams would get larger and, and, and hitting up other people at the company. Um, and, and somebody suggested that I actually do this job. Mm. And, you know, once my, uh, booking coordinator role was up, so that actually became the focus, um, talking to people and, and getting this set up as a, as a role. Um, and so, yeah, I left the company uh, end of January, a couple of years ago, took six weeks off, traveled to Southeast Asia and then came back and started my role as a business intelligence analyst at Paradigm. So wow. you yeah. made that role for yourself essentially in the company? Essentially. Yeah. Um, it was, everybody uses data all the time. Um, but there was no one person doing it across the entire company. Um, and I thought we needed that. And so did a lot of others. And, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't easy by any means, but um, it was really great that the company took a chance on me um, because I had no experience doing this. And they just kind of let me take it and run with it. So what exactly does a business intelligence analyst do? And how have you found yourself adjusting in your role post-COVID? So, like I mentioned, when I started the role, there were some loose outlines, but um, it was definitely something I needed to build along with others and, and figuring it, figure out what it was. Um, like you guys know, data's always been important in the music industry, and um, ticket sales, album sales, everybody's looked at data since the dawn of time of this industry. Um, but I think at some point with the, the rise of social media and uh, streaming services, 
um, it got really messy. The data got very messy and it ended up, you'd think one metric meant something and it ended up being the exact opposite. And a lot of people would say, data is going to solve your problems and just point to all these numbers. And then it ended up not solving the problem or creating a new one. Um, so a lot of the, the beginning of this job was just sitting down with our agents and figuring out what data meant to them, what data that they interacted with on a regular basis. And it's also just so amazing because across a company like Paradigm, you have multiple, multiple genres and thousands of artists and agents operate in different ways that they've formed over the years and that works specifically within the genre that they work with most. Um, so it was a lot of sitting down, taking stock of all the data that we have, all the data that's out there, um, and figuring out, you know, what works for hip hop versus pop versus a jam band. It's really different, but there are common denominators. So, so sitting down and figuring out that across the board, I think that's where it started. And then we were able um, me in tandem with a bunch of other leaders there were able to figure out exactly what the job could do. Um, and it turned into a thing that, you know, I really love. And in my current role, um, especially pre-COVID times, I got to work with so many exciting things like helping um, develop touring strategy and diving into our data sets or our internal data sets, our external data sets to help, you know, strategize what markets to hit, what markets to avoid, um, got to be helpful in a lot of signing meetings. So if you have an especially exciting client that you're looking to sign, um, usually you have a, a signing meeting. So doing research there and helping form a strategy or, or kind of a narrative for an agent. So there's, uh, there's A&R, <laughs> very important. Um, that's something I get to work with a lot, uh, figuring out, you know, not only will this artist, what is this artist buzz, but do they have the potential to um, have people want to go see their live performances, which I think is, in a label world, if something's streaming or picking up numbers, you definitely want it on your side because through those streams, you get revenue, you know, um, on the agency side of things, it's happened a lot where an artist is streaming super, super well, but nobody wants to go see them at a show. Um, or they start out, you know, streaming really well. And these numbers are just amazing and astronomical. And then you go put them in a big room like Webster Hall, just throwing that one out there and, and the sales fall flat, um, <laughs> which goes a lot more into the touring strategy than it, I think, than it says about um, the artist. But mm -hmm. so there's that component of A&R and helping build like our internal tracking systems for what we're going to do there with artists. Um, and then, of course, working with our service departments across the agency, like brand partnerships, sync and score, um, our digital strategy team. It's really great, I feel like, because I get to touch all different aspects of the company, whereas prior I was just mainly an electronic. Um, yeah. So I really love that about this role. It's mm. so diverse and 
you get a lot of like the same questions, but it's different artists and maybe it's an artist that you've loved for a really long time. That's very big or very small developing artist. Um, so it's been very creative in that sense. And yeah. I'd like to dig a little deeper on what you mentioned about, you know, certain artists that maybe are really big in the streaming world, but maybe it doesn't translate as well to the live scene um, without giving away any of the secret sauce. Can you speak at all to, you know, how does it play out with, you know, genre or does it play out in the, the audience demographic itself? Is there a way to kind of like boil that down to what you can see in the data itself? Or is it more just kind of like background institutional knowledge that makes that uh, something that makes sense to you as the BI analyst? Um, I would say mostly the agents have figured this out themselves. Um, so, you know, 10 years ago when Spotify was being introduced and Facebook was really popping, Instagram got popping, Twitter got popping, you'd see an artist blowing up Um can't think of like any in particular right now um but you'd see them and you'd see these astronomical numbers and be so excited and then automatically put them in a big room or 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 another one is you'd see that they had the most streams in mexico city so you take them to mexico city <laughs> and you put up a big show and just have it fall flat and not really be well attended at all um so a lot of agents went through trial and error during that time period. But basically what it comes down to now is I think it speaks a lot to the agents and the, and the strategy that they've, you know, developed through intuition and, and trial and error through a long time. So when you have an artist like that, it's really important to um, start small. Don't skip steps. So there's important venues. Um, that you don't want to skip because if you play there and it's small, first of all, you get touring experience. You get to, as an artist, you get touring experience and you get to really like hone your live performance and, and figure out what you and an audience look like together. And then if that sells well, you can kind of graduate to the next size room, the next cap size. So you go from like a hundred, 200 size rooms to 300, 500, and then onwards and upwards. So it's important to, you know, not skip those steps. And, and in, in those ways, you can kind of, you know, not have the experience of being a wildly successful streaming artist and then not being able to sell a ticket and, you know, being a little disappointed when you can't sell out mm. a, a large venue. You mentioned brand partnerships. Um, how important are brand partnerships for artists, especially these days? And how might artists benefit from understanding how you use data in this regard? Yeah, I think brand partnerships can be very important for an artist. Um, but I think it definitely depends on the artist. Um, you know, for Smaller bands, it can be a really great opportunity for financial support um, to fund a tour or, or fund some recording during a time. Um, kind of a great paycheck 
that is also a paycheck, but also doubles as a, one of your marketing efforts. It gives you mm -hmm. a little bit more exposure. When you're an artist or a band looking to have a, a brand partnership, um, it's important to really think about who you are as a brand, uh, as a band or a brand, to be honest, <laughs> and find companies that you align with in, in different ways. Um, and, you know, thinking about how data plays into that, it's really important to look at your statistics. Like, who are your audience? Like, do they skew towards one end of the gender spectrum over another? Or do they skew older or younger? Or are they in other countries or, or more local? Um, it's just important to note those metrics because brands are usually looking to, you know, achieve something with a partnership like this. And whether you have a similar audience or it's just different enough that it really benefits both of you, those are all really important factors. Not that long ago, like it totally wasn't cool to quote unquote sell out, right? Like like working with a brand was like super not cool and like, you know, high profile celebrities would only do it like in foreign countries. So it didn't affect how, you know, their American audience space would, would view them. So. What do you think happened? Um, and you know, maybe this is not something you think about too often, but um, I'm just curious if you maybe have an opinion on what kind of happened in the past, maybe like decade or two, and you know, why is it all of a sudden cool now for someone to do in a campaign with like Adidas or whoever other brand? What I can think of, like what happened in the past ten years, is social media. <laughs> Yeah. Everybody became obsessed with themselves in a way and promoting yourself and finding your own identity and being really proud of it. Um, kind of creating your own brand became the norm. And although there is definitely cases of people selling out, there's really also cases of finding other brands and other people that align with you and partnering with them and promoting that on social media became so much more normal. I mean, look at influencer brand marketing. It's really taking off. It's resonating with people. Um, people, you know, fans, individuals see themselves in other people and in those cases get attached to a brand. And as long as it's authentic in, yeah. in some manner or way, shape or form, it can resonate with people. And that's where you see like success from artist brand partnerships or influencer marketing or, or anything. But yeah, there are cases where you just sell out and you think, ah, you know, uh, this seems not very tasteful, but yeah. there's so many like beautiful partnerships that you see opening up, um, where the brand, not only the brand, um, but the artists really take the time to find common ground and find an issue or a narrative that they're both passionate about. Like that's, this is just the best case scenario. Um, sure. oftentimes with like <laughs> Adidas or, or Puma, um, you can just see some really amazing stories, um, come out of that. If you, if you both have actual authentic common ground and that resonates with people. So COVID stuff. The live side of the industry has obviously been most affected. How do you see it evolving as things progress? Will everything sort of snap back into place or will it be like a long, arduous process, do you think? Yeah, um, 
For that one, it's definitely very hard to say what will come of the live touring industry. Um, and it will be so very interesting to see how it all turns out. Um, there's obviously so much speculation going on and everybody wants to know what's going to happen. But the truth of the matter is we're, we're not going to find out till it does. Um, I mean, even now, it's really interesting to go back and, and look at the emails or news articles that are talking about what the future is going to look like and just to see how it's played out. It's totally shifting off the time. Um, obviously, like there's a lot of parties involved, like the government, um, promoters, venues, agents, artists, the crew, the fans. And the most important thing is safety. So it's really going to depend a lot on what local governments say. Um, you already see some states opening and then shutting back up again. So mm. it's very difficult to say um, what it's going to look like. But I lean a little bit closer towards the long, arduous process <laughs> that was mentioned. Um, yeah, I feel like you're going to see a lot of we're all going to see a lot of changes. I mean, you see them already. I, I think a really big one, too, when things get back a little bit more so to normal and maybe venues start opening up again and, and touring does, I feel like there's going to be a huge change in the way international artists tour. Mm. I think it's going to be more of a focus on national, um, maybe even more an increased focus on the local scenes and kind mm. of boosting community through that way because we're not going to get these international bands um travel it's going to be a little more restrictive um so that's just a thought on how this is all going to play out but really we don't know um but safety is always 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 going to be the number one concern um right. for artists and fans across the board um mm -hmm. one thing though that i do just want to shout out uh, is that everybody is very concerned, very rightfully concerned about the survival of independent music venues through all of this. Mm. Um, these independent venues have, have so much history across the board and so many successful artists or unsuccessful artists have really jump-started their careers there. Um, so it's really important you know, if if we don't have them in the future, the ecosystem's going to look so, so different from what it has been and, and not in a good way, not in a good way. Um, so I think a, a huge focus of the industry and a lot of people at agencies and artists ac across the board is, is going to be finding ways to keep those venues afloat. Um, NEVA, Nas National Independent Venue Association, is doing a lot of amazing work trying to make sure that venues uh, across the country um, are able to get the funding that they need and, and keep open. Um, but it would just be tragic if we lost them because they're such a staple in in our, our music communities, you know? So where do, where do you think live streaming fits into all of this? Do you think it'll like remain an important supplement or is it just kind of like a something that gets tossed out once live comes back. Yeah. I mean, when you 
think about it. Live streams have, have been around for a while. Um, and you've especially seen them a lot in the last five to 10 years, um, notably Coachella or something like Ultra Music Festival or Tomorrowland. But it always seemed to be more of an afterthought, like you definitely agreed to play the festival and then you'd negotiate the terms on the live stream. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a whole host of like legal nuances that come with a live stream within themselves. So I'm sure we've all heard about a lot during um, this time. Um, that said, I do think that they're definitely going to be sticking around for the foreseeable future. I mean, you see it a few times already. Um, with some drive-in concerts. So I think live streams are going to stick around because, I mean, nothing will ever replace the feeling of a live show, in my opinion, and I'm sure a lot of people would agree with me on that. But if we're not able to be there together or if an artist just isn't able to hit that market, just being a part of a a live show in in any of those ways is, is impactful for an audience. Um, a fan. So I, I definitely think they're going to stay around. Um, have you guys caught any of the, the K-pop live streams? A lot of the people planning live streams for the foreseeable future should look to some of the K-pop elements. <laughs> I mean, they just have an amazing fan base to begin with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was such an awesome live stream and it felt it got that close to feeling like I was at an actual show with a bunch of other screaming K-pop fans. So I guess just like a final, final takeaway um, in light of all of this, how, how do artists and companies representing artists adjust in the short term, especially when it comes to like lost revenue and prepare for, you know, that potential long arduous process of recovery? (laughs) yeah the the most important question right now (laughs) um well in the both the short term and long term basically every show has been rescheduled to 2021 um which definitely shifts things up a bit um not only for the rest of the year but just for years to come it's it's crazy to see when you get a certain way along in your career, how much things are plans, planned in advance. Um, so that definitely shifts. Um, but I think for both short-term and long-term as well, it's just important to take this time to create experiences that really resonate with your fans virtually or online. Um, I think it's really important for artist teams to understand their audiences, um, how those audiences are feeling, um, what they're feeling at a time and work to connect with them in um, ways that are authentic to the artist and the audience and something unique for the fan. I think that's definitely at the top of every artist team's mind right now. Um, There's also lots of virtual festivals and, and things being explored. It was really interesting to see the first wave of virtual shows come out as uh, COVID happened. Um, They were frequent. They were not planned very far in advance. Um, They were often with a charity charity focus. But that kind of died down a bit maybe 
I'd say from my own experience about a month ago and then was really taken over with um, everything important going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and, and shifted into that direction. Um, and that is definitely going to continue in a lot, in a lot of ways, but throughout the summer, it'll be really interesting to see what happens to virtual shows because I mean, in, in my opinion, I have a theory that virtual shows are, are going to suffer a little bit over the summer. Mm. Um, because it was much easier in the early times of COVID when you're stuck at home and it's cold outside <laughs> to go on your computer and watch a set from, you know, an artist that you love or an artist that you're just hearing for the first time. Mm. Um, but I think over the summer, it will be definitely interesting to see how virtual concerts and festivals play out um, on, on a mass scale. Mm. Um you know, because it's beautiful outside and you've just been inside for the longest amount of your entire life. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so maybe you don't want to be staring at a screen um, and instead are going to take some time to stare at nature. Um, so I, <laughs> I think over the summer, like for for virtual concerts, because they're not going away anytime soon, um, but it'll be interesting to see how they evolve and, and what artists, and artist teams do to really tap in and connect with that community and, and, and make it special for them. Um, while also like not expecting them to be online every day. So now yeah. it's time for some music related trivia and we're making it intentionally difficult. So you might have to take some educated guesses, but do keep in mind that every answer is an artist on the Paradigm roster. Which okay. is huge, by the way. In case yeah. the listener is not familiar, Paradigm's roster is huge. Very <laughs> large. This is going to be interesting. So what artist has the highest local Spotify monthly listeners in San Diego? Is it A, Lewis Berry, B, Lewis the Child, C, Lewis Cole, or D, Lewis Culture? <laughs> I like the theme that you chose with all the Lewis names. There you go. Um, I, I think I'm going to go with D, Lewis Culture. Am I wrong? Uh, oh, sorry. Of it's course. Lewis the Child with 29.9 thousand local monthly listeners. Yeah, Lewis the Child streams are like way up there. San Diego's a total college town. Um, or it has a lot of young people in it. So this makes a lot of sense. Um, what artist has the second highest local YouTube daily views in New York City? Okay. So second highest um, YouTube count in New York City. Pop, etc. B, Porches. C, Pop Smoke. Or D, Porter Robinson. All right. Okay. So this has me thinking, especially with all of the really important um, movements going on. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go with Pop Smoke. Nice. I yeah. He's definitely been a music's a voice for a lot of what's going on. Um, and I know he was already like banging on YouTube numbers. Yeah. Um, he's been you know, very successful in, in that realm. So yeah, pop smoke. All right. This, this next one's like really hard, but you mentioned you were in New Mexico. 
um, a couple of weeks ago, so I went with the <laughs> with Albuquerque. So, what artist has the seventh most local followers on Instagram in Albuquerque? Is it A. George Alice, B. George Shingleton, C. George Porter Jr. Or D, George Strait? You went with George's on this one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. This is going to be interesting. Um, Albuquerque. To be honest, and like we did preface, we have a giant roster. (laughs) Um, So I don't know all of these Georges, but... In terms of Instagram, I think I'm going to go with George Porter Jr. I don't know. Wow. (laughs) George Strait. That was going to be my other guess. (laughs) All right, cool. Last one. Um, What artist has the 15th most local Shazam chart occurrences in L.A.? Uh, We've got A, Archangel. B, Archers of Loaf. C, David Argeleta, or D, Sudan Archives? <laughs> you really dug deep on this one, Rucker, when you wrote those answers. Goodness. Very curious. Because I think David Archuleta just released a new song or something during quarantine. Um, so I'm going to go with David Archuleta. Uh, <laughs> Arik Angel. Uh, 46 uh, Shazam Trade Occurrences in L.A. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. All right. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for chatting with us today. Is there a way for people to contact you if they want to get in touch? Yeah, definitely. Thank you guys um, so much for having me on. This was really fun. And I've loved all your other podcasts. Um, But yeah, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, they can reach out to me on Instagram, which is D.H. Greemore or dgreemore at paradigmagency.com or, you know, shoot me a message on LinkedIn and I would be happy to get in touch. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. This was great. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. Special thanks to Diana Greemore. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and article links and show notes are at podcast.chartmetric.com. If you want more insights delivered to your inbox when we publish, subscribe to our blog at blog.chartmetric.com. As always, feel free to say hi to us on our socials as well. That's it for Season 2, Episode 15 of How Music Charts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.